sobre la cuestión acerca de si la lucha armada es el único camino para la liberación. Lo que puedo responder es que, por lo menos en las condiciones de nuestro país, no había otro camino. So the Cuban Revolution um, took place between 1953 and 59, but we have to uh, at least consider some of the background context that led to the revolution, especially the colonial context. And while we're not going to go through like the entire history from like 1492 on, we've actually done that in other episodes dealing with like the Zapatistas and stuff like that, like the colonial history of Latin America, Spanish conquistadors and Portuguese conquistadors, and, and then of course like U.S. imperialism after the Monroe Doctrine. We've talked a lot about that stuff on other episodes um, on this channel, so please go check this out. I, I just kind of want to get like right to the point here and we are going to pick up um after all of that like repartimiento and encomienda and all that other stuff that led to the spanish-american war of 1898 that's where we really want to pick up um the really the beginning of u.s imperialism so it is tied at least um from a, a, an american lens uh, this need to compete with the other colonial powers at the time and again it, it's got ties dating all the way back to the 1820s with monroe doctrine like um, um, international actions and things along those lines. Um, it also has ties, believe it or not, to the American Civil War, where like something as simple as like sugar uh, cultivation became problematic after the, uh, the, the end of the Civil War for exploitative um, American plantation owners and corporations and so on and so forth. So they began to look for other places that they could uh, uh, exploit other workers that don't have um, rights under what, the 13th Amendment anymore, mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment. They don't have those rights anymore um, because they're international actors and they can still be exploited for sugar cultivation. And all of these things kind of um, um, mixed together into an amalgamation, this magic elixir of, of U.S. exploitation in Latin America, and specifically in our case, of course, Cuba. So uh, the Spanish-American War, again, we probably should do an entire episode on that one of these days, but, mm -hmm. but not right now. Anyway, it is a blatant war of aggression um, by the United States against the Spanish crown, basically arguing that it is going to liberate some of these remaining Spanish territories um, in the Americas and actually Southeast Asia as well. Um, and of course, long story short, the United States does defeat the Spanish crown and quote unquote liberates places like Puerto Rico, um, Cuba, of course, our topic for today, uh, Guam, which still remains a U.S. Uh, uh, territory to this day, and, and in theory, the Philippines. But again, worthy of its own episode, the Filipinos did not feel very liberated and then fought another war against the Americans, uh, the Filipino-American War which led to um, wild, wild human rights violations by the Americans of Filipinos. But again, that deserves its own topic. We're going to keep moving and get back to Cuba here. Um, in Cuba, uh, eventually a constitution is, is, is put together uh, for Cuba, but there's also uh, changes within United States legislation, most importantly, the Platt Amendment of 1901, which basically gives the U.S., like, I don't know, like imperial rights in Cuba to dictate like Cuban both domestic and international actions in mm -hmm. the name of like American protectionism. In the words of actually Ernesto Che Guevara, and we're going to read from him real quick. He wrote a little bit later in kind of like a retrospective article called On the Cuban Economy. 
Uh, Che basically had this to say, and in his words, I think they're better than mine. He says, The Paris Treaty of 1898 and the Platt Amendment of 1901 were the signs under which our new republic was born. In the first, the settlement of accounts after the war between two powers led to the withdrawal of Spain and the intervention of the United States. On the island, which had suffered years of cruel struggle, the Cubans were only observers. They had no part in the negotiations. The second, the Platt Amendment, established the right of the United States to intervene in Cuba whenever her interests demanded it. In May 1902, the political military oppression of the United States was formally ended, but her monopolistic power remained. Cuba became an economic colony of the United States, and this remained its main characteristic for half a century. Uh, I don't think anyone could say it better than Che in this mm -hmm. case, but essentially he's framing what we're discussing. So you're not going to find any like, like, like legal documentation that says Cuba is a colony of the United States after 1902. But what you're going to see here is like a complete invasion, uh, again, politically and, and actually um, economically of the United States into Cuba. I think it's a really good example of neocolonialism, right? It's no yeah. longer like traditional colonial rule. Now, like you said, it's just like well, sort of subversive, etc. And it's like, and it's one of the earlier examples of this because mm -hmm. um, for some of the European colonies in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, like they remained like formal colonies like through World War II. Um, this earlier version, which again takes place, you know, 40 years before World War II, um, it kind of, I don't know. It's almost prescient in a way of what yeah. the new colonialism will look like after World War II. It's one of those er earlier examples of soft yeah. colonialism. Exactly. I mean, is that a good word for it? I mean, it's not soft by any means, but yeah. Right. So the imperial regime in Cuba basically is a series of dictators, quote-unquote presidents, backed basically by U.S. Um, sometimes finances, sometimes U.S. arms, uh, but basically U.S. interests private interests and government interests. I must stress that. It's not just the United States government that's involved. There are private business interests that are also propping up these like paper dictators or paper tigers. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, another little uh, aside here, while we're talking about U.S. imperialism in Cuba uh, during the early part of the 20th century, organized crime also became imperial. A lot of organized crime, um, especially during the Prohibition era in the United States, went offshore um, to the Caribbean, and one of their favorite places uh, to operate was Havana, Cuba. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a lot of organized crime that basically rolls into Cuba under the soft U.S. occupation. Uh, basically, uh, it, it was a way to make uh, bootleg alcohol. It was a place to gamble. It was a place to... Uh, uh, profit from um, sexual predation to be blunt prostitution rings that were American run in Cuba. Um, it was wildly exploitative. Uh, one of the most famous places all this took place at, uh, some of you might be familiar with, is called the Flamingo Hotel. Really famous uh, among gangster culture. Um, yeah, I mean, it, we typically don't think about, when we think about the history of prohibition in the United States, the impact that it had in some of the surrounding nations. Cuba is a perfect example. As all of this stuff was forced, it became illegal and was forced underground in the United States, a large portion of it was just transferred, exported to Cuba. So they started, like Jared said, manufacturing alcohol and prostitution rings and gambling and all of these things that were associated with organized crime that was being cracked down on in the U.S., just manifested itself in Cuba just the same. Yeah, to be clear, it's not just like this this like more formalized ver ver version of soft colonialism with like corporate exploitation. There's also quote-unquote illegal colonial exploitation also taking place mm -hmm. by Americans, not sanctioned by the government, at least not formally sanctioned by the government. I'm, right. They didn't do a whole lot to stop it, but mm -hmm. yeah. 
uh, notable players in this. Uh, some of you may know these names called Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano. These are some of like super famous, you know, U.S. Mm-hmm. gangsters um, that uh, that are hanging out in Havana, Cuba. Uh, a great source on this, if you want to know more, because we're going to kind of keep moving towards the revolutionary part, is called uh, Gangsterismo, uh, the United States, Cuba, and the Mafia between 1933 and 1966. It's written by an author named Jack Calhoun. I always recommend people go check that out if they're interested in like that kind of like mafioso gangster culture and what that looked like on an international level. So anyway, good source. At any rate, we have to get to like the context of a dictator that wasn't so paper. Uh, he definitely was backed by the United States, at least for a while. Um, then they stopped. But uh, and, and he's definitely notable for being um, oppressive in a multitude of ways, which we'll talk about later. But he's one of the ones that kind of began to act a little bit more on his own. Um, the U.S. didn't have complete control over this guy. And that's, of course, of Fulgencio Batista, who was uh, El Presidente between 1940 and 44, and then again between 1952 and 59. So there's a little Batista gap in there. And it's actually a 12-year gap. Mm-hmm. No, an eight-year gap. I can't do math. Um, but even in the words of the, uh, the very famous John F. Kennedy, he is considered one of the most bloody and repressive dictatorships in the long history of Latin American repression. And, of course, JFK, again, we'll do a separate episode on this was like real into like Latin American intervention. Like it's under him that we see the creation of like the wildly oppressive like Operation Condor, like clandestine, like overthrowing governments in Latin America, but also the somewhat more egalitarian Peace Corps. Like that's, that's, you know, and its main goal was to like go into Latin America and help out. And so like we see two sides of JFK, I guess, with those two examples. But yeah, you get the idea. Anyway, under soft American colonialism in Cuba, what you see is limited Cuban employment, land exploitation, over-specialization of the land, little water access, countless political prisoners, especially under Batista, especially if they were accused at some point of being socialist or communist leading either during the first Red Scare of the early 20th century or the second Red Scare um, after World War II. Definitely a lot of political prisoners. Um, as many as 20,000 deaths, all those sources are all over the place on this, so I'm, I'm not going to like cite any specifically. I've seen as high as 20,000 is what we'll say uh, in this regard. As far as over-specialization and land exploitation, I want some commentary real quick there. Like Nick, Nick, Nick does this pretty, pretty well, actually. This discussion of like, what was that land being exploited for and how did land exploitation somehow benefit the United States economy? How did land exploitation and overuse in Cuba help the United States? So, I mean, the biggest thing we talk about when we talk about this is the idea of a cash crop, right? Crops that can only, that are only valuable in, through selling them, that you can't consume them to survive. So some, an example of one that was really popular in Cuba that Jared already mentioned is sugar. So sugar plantations flourished in Cuba. Jared said at the end of the Civil War, when slave labor was abolished, at least in theory in the United States, much of this production was exported to Cuba. And so in a country, when this happens, it creates a reliance on this nation and its people on whatever nation is doing the exploitation because you can't survive any longer on your own crops when their only function is to be grown and to be sold to the colonizing nation in this case. You must rely on them for your actual survival. You must import food and so forth. 
Yeah, so like the, Cuba's land is is perfect for for mm-hmm. for ranching and farming, a number of different different things, different commodities. But when you turn it into just basically using it for one thing, you create dependency. Cuba will now be a, a dependent upon Americans, and dependency is where you get, gain control. If somebody mm-hmm. is dependent upon you for something as basic as foodstuffs, aside from sugar, of course, then you now control them. Like you yep. control, dictate the way things are going to go. And it's almost always accompanied with an enclosure of the land. So like right. in most Latin American countries, they had a system which Jared's talked about in the past where the community had rights to certain swaths of land where they could grow food to survive on their own. Right. Once colonial exploitation comes in, usually those lands get enclosed into the lands of the corporations and so forth that are then turning them into cash crops. So it's removed, the rights are removed from the people themselves and put in the hands of corporations, in this case, many American corporations. So let's hear from Che, again, uh, no better source on this than, than, of course, Ernesto Guevara. So he says the natural advantages of the cultivation of sugar in Cuba are obvious, but the predominant fact is that Cuba was developed as a sugar factory of the United States, which it had been a sugar factory of the Spanish crown before that. So the United States doesn't even, even set the system up. Like, they're basically taking advantage, if we had done more of a historical context, of that, uh, basically, like, dating back to the repartimiento and the encomienda and the maquiladoras and all of these systems that have already been implemented. The United States doesn't like liberate anybody from those. It basically just takes them over and mm-hmm. calls them something else. Sure. Uh, the American banks and capitalists soon controlled the commercial exploitation of sugar and furthermore, a good share of the industrial output and of the land. In this way, a monopolistic control was established by U.S. interests in all aspects of a sugar production, which soon became the predominant factor in our foreign trade due to the rapidly developing monoproductive characteristics of the country. Cuba became the sugar-producing and exporting country par excellence, and if she did not develop even further in this respect, the reason is to be found in the capitalist contradictions which put a limit to a continuous expansion of the Cuban sugar industry, which depended almost entirely on American capital. And he goes on and on. And he actually has like like data, you know, like how much like actual data, like like what percentage was American owned, which percentage was Cuban owned, the tariffs that were implemented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's a great article. Maybe we'll link it. It's called on the Cuban economy economy. But the point here I think we're driving at is that like, okay, so the United States basically investment, private and public, um, are controlling like Cuban sugar production. And again, a lot of that can be traced back to like colonialism and imperialism and Monroe Doctrine and finding a new place after the Civil War, the American Civil War to, to get cheap sugar. But also, it's not just about exploiting the land for sugar and overproducing sugar. There were times where they would actually let the land go fallow. Why would the United States actually force sometimes Cuban farmers that could profit from sugar production, why would they force them not to grow during certain times? To manipulate prices of sugar on the market. And that led to rampant unemployment and spikes in unemployment during different periods of time. It's basically, it is, it's, it's, it's the exact antithesis to a free market. Mm-hmm. And that's what he says. Like the, he basically calls it like capitalist hypocrisy here. It's the antithesis to, to, to a free market in this case. Uh, anyway, as we move forward, basically sugar was one of the main reasons we see uh, U.S. control over Cuba um, kind of grow over time. That and, of course, um, um, illegal activities that we already talked about. As far as... Um, resistance goes. Before we get to resistance, we often frame the Cuban Revolution as a great example of the cult of personality. And so we want to go through a little bit of the cult of personality and its role in revolutionary politics and actual like revolutionary change, like how it works in terms of organization and social movement, and in this case, actual military action. 
certain revolutions, I mean, all revolutions have a cult of personality, right? The American War for Independence had the, the, the George Washingtons, and, 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 and the French Revolution had the Lafayettes, and, and we've talked about those on this podcast before. But I'm not sure even they were concurrently as iconic as these two. Mm -hmm. They became iconic, like, kind of in retrospect as historians began to, like, craft a narrative about those, like, wars for independence or revolutions. These two were icons of their era and thereafter. In fact, one still remains emblazoned on mm -hmm. T-shirts everywhere, which is probably much to his chagrin rolling over in his grave that, that, that we're selling T-shirts with his face on it. But regardless. Oh, yeah, I was in... I was on vacation, I think it was in Faro, Portugal, and there's a bar there called Che, and on the side of the building is a massive mural of Che Guevara. Like, that's, it's just far-reaching across the globe. Yeah, throughout, I think every Latin American country mm -hmm. has at least one Che mural somewhere, right? Like, yeah. some, I mean, we've recently done episodes on the Zapatistas, and we see uh, uh, murals with Subcomitant de Marcos and Che in the same mural, uh, and of course, Emiliano Zapata. Mm -hmm. But, like, like, we see that. Okay, so let's talk real quickly. Where were these cults of personality born? And, and, and I already said there's two of them that we want to talk about. We already know which ones we're going to talk about. Of course, uh, the one we've already mentioned, Ernesto Che Guevara. And then, of course, perhaps even more famous or maybe infamous, uh, uh, Fidel Castro. So we'll start actually with Fidel Castro. So Fidel Castro was born in 1926 and, of course, very recently passed away in 2016. Uh, I'll go through his bio like super quick. Uh, he was born to a sugar farmer, of course. And uh, the sugar farmer's mistress. Uh, eventually, he was kind of like a troubled kid, and they sent him away to Catholic school, uh, you know, at age eight for some good mm -hmm. discipline. And uh, even in Catholic school, he was known for uh, misbehaving quite often. He was uh, he was a little rebel, even back then as a, as a kid. And he ended up switching schools a, a multitude of times. Um there's obviously, it's kind of famous at this point. He was a really good athlete as well. And of course, his, his preferred sport was baseball. Now, the rumor that he was um, at one point like drafted or contacted by the New York Yankees of Major League Baseball, that's not always been corroborated. And I don't even want to enter into that debate. But the fact that the debate exists or the myth, I should say, exists does kind of show like how I suppose athletic Fidel Castro mm -hmm. was, and it was one of his favorite hobbies. I, I don't know. He was also well-learned. Anyway, moving forward through like his childhood, he eventually ends up um, wanting to be a lawyer. And he goes to law school in uh, Havana, Cuba, where he became a student activist uh, and, and eventually as an activist was relied upon because of his, his wit and his ability to frame arguments. Um, he was ba basically tabbed to give um, public speeches against the then-president Grau. Like this was during the Batista Gap, so President Grau. Uh, and he started really in like 1946. He also became notorious um, for being such an effective, um, at least rhetorician, I don't know about organizer yet, but at least rhetorician, that he began tar became targeted by the Cuban government and U.S. informants working for the Cuban government at the time. So he became targeted. He received a number of very, uh, different death threats. And again, this is like a college student. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't like some sort of like old grizzled like revolutionary veteran. This is a college. This is a college student. I don't want to call them kids because we don't call them that. But like this is a college student. But you know, a very young dude getting death threats from like. The government. Like, mm -hmm. how, what do you, like, how would you react to that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd be terrified. I would do probably what he did. He also got death threats from, like, gangsters. Again, I'm being very clear here. Like, like American and Cuban um, um, members of gangs that were working with the uh, very corrupt Grau presidency or Grau... Uh, uh, whatever. What's the word I'm looking Dictatorship. for? Dictatorship. Thank you. Dictatorship. <laughs> That's not the word I was looking for, but we'll call it that. Um, Regime. 
he was, yes, regime is what I was looking for. Absolutely. He was so scared, like, because of these threats, both from, like, like, like gangs as well as the government, that he would actually go to school, like, armed. Like, he would attend classes, like, armed, just, like, because he was so scared for his life. Um, and I must stress, like, this is very important in framing who this person is going to be. Like, this guy, essentially, he began his life, like, being a little bit of, like, kind of a troublemaker and a rebel, and he goes to Catholic school, and he's doing everything, but eventually he turns around and he's doing everything right, right? He's a good athlete, he's going to law school, he wants to use legislation to help liberate his homeland, his country, right? He wants to do better. And for wanting to do better, he's threatened with death. Like, this is, this is how you can kind of manufacture, like, this person that's going to become a revolutionary and a very controversial revolutionary. Like, mm -hmm. he wants to do the right thing. And he's met not with, like, reason, but with violence. Yeah. So that must be stressed. Eventually, he joins a party called the uh, Partido Ortodoxo. Basically, it's the party of the Cuban people. He does this, of course, while he's still a student. This um, party was wildly important. They looked back um, to the revolutionary iconography of a very famous Cuban revolutionary who helped uh, eventually get Cuba its independence during like the, the Spanish during Spanish colonialism, a man named Jose Marti. Um, that icon, of, I, we, he deserves his own episode too, although I don't know that I have the background to do that. But like... That revolutionary iconography is what they like draw it upon, which mm -hmm. is, I, I mentioned that because this whole idea that, 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 that we're going to get to later, that Castro was always like a wild communist, is actually not really correct. At this point, he is a Cuban, we would argue maybe a Cuban nationalist, and that's what he's like drawing upon, inspiration for the Cuban people, or this idea of Cuba for Cubans, not Cubans for foreign exploiters, whether they be um, uh, American gangsters or European investors or whatever it is. But that's what this idea is about. Jose Martí's iconography of liberating Cuba and making it a place specifically for the Cuban people to benefit. He went on a 1,200-man expedition to the Dominican Republic. And this was like going to be a like a, an experiment in anti-imperial warfare. He wanted to basically go to the Dominican Republic and learn how to liberate a similar um, set of circumstances there. And and that was going to be the attempted overthrow of the then United States puppet dictator, a man named Rafael Trujillo, uh, Trujillo in 1947. Um, if you don't know about Rafael Trujillo and the Dominican Republic and his ties, his direct ties to the United States, um, go ahead and Google him and look him up. He was awful. He was awful to his... So all of us going on vacation to like Punta Cana and things along those lines, like you must understand like that exists because of the wild, exploitative, and violent oppression of a man named Rafael Trujillo under United States tutelage. So that's why this is one of the places in Latin America I actually struggle to ever want to go to mm -hmm. because I know it only exists because of, like, blood. Like, it exists, like, this tourist trap exists because of blood. Right. Most tourist traps do, but this one is just so, so blatant, right? Mm -hmm. Like, anyway. He also takes off to go to Colombia. He ends up in Bogota. Um, uh, after uh, one of the leftist revolutionaries there, a man named Ayala, is assassinated. And that, in Colombia, is where he started to dive a little bit more into, like, Marxist literature. Like, he, he began to learn a little bit more about um, socialism, um, for lack of a better term. He ends up back in Cuba in 1980, or 1980, 1948, and he ends up getting married at this point in time to, um, actually, a, a very bourgeois uh, woman named Mar she's cool but like she's she's of the bourgeois class Mirta Diaz Balart 
Um, and it's actually frowned upon by both families, hers because he's from perhaps a little bit different like class and cut from a little bit rougher cloth. And, 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 and of course it's, it's, I don't, it's not like Romeo Juliet, like, mm-hmm. like, like so, <laughs> we're not talking about what are they Montagues and Capulets here, but like, it, it's just not, it's, it's highly frowned upon by both families that these two like hooked up. Anyway, while he's married and uh, attending classes again, he gets back into activism. Um, his activism is focused on um, two primary things during this period of time after he got married, two primary like issues plaguing Cuba, and they might be surprising to some of these uh, listeners, or at least the first one is anti-racism. Yeah, given some of his persecution of people later as a dictator, and, and it was never racial, but it was definitely based on, on sexual identity, um, people would not predict Castro to be so into um, challenging basically what we would just call civil rights. He's doing this in 1948. I mean, he's really pushing for civil rights right. in Cuba in 1948, bef- like during the time where it's only getting ramped back up again in the United States after a brief break because of World War II, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was something that was wildly important to him was racial equality. Uh, and again, I, I must stress there is one group of people that he will continue to persecute after him, but it is not black Cubans. Uh, the other thing that his activism was focused on was anti-imperialism. He goes on to finish his law degree. His law, and he opens up his own law practice. Again, while he's married, his law practice worked predominantly for Cuba's poor and destitute, and most importantly, in, of course, Havana, the biggest city. Here's the thing, though. Because of where his head was at at this time, again, he he would basically be representing people that had nothing to give, nothing to pay him for, nothing to provide, and he'd be representing them either against the state or against corporations or whatever it might be. He'd end up representing them for basically free. They would basically just give them whatever he they could they could find or scrounge up. Maybe of course it was a loaf of bread. Um, I think this speaks a lot to Castro's character, and I think it's often overlooked that he's essentially playing the game as the imperialists would want while just i guess what i would say he's kind of being moderate left he's being liberal here Mm -hmm. he's trying to essentially play the game still believing in the institutions that are in place and that they just need little tweaks maybe little legislative tweaks and ultimately we already know that's not going to work then and i sure it sure as shit wouldn't work now but that's for a different episode Mm -hmm. but we want to believe in it and eventually it's going to be these false promises of working for the system that's going to cause him to also become more of a revolutionary so that's kind why I want to stretch, stress this. I must also stress that not getting paid for actual his, his actual legal work began to stress his marriage, especially coming from uh, Mirta coming from a little bit more of a well-off family. She was not super happy. Um, and the fact that they like just didn't have a lot of material possessions and they're living kind of like poor um, while he represents people for basically like free, this upset her a little bit. Anyway, um, to further kind of like double down on him trying to like work within the confines of the system, he ends up um, uh, uh, running for actual like office. He runs for like what Cuba's version of the House of Representatives essentially under the Partido Orthodoxo like party. Again, I think this is going to be controversial for me to say this, but I think this is the naivete of like leftists around the world that want to like make the world a better place. They think like, like using the system, a system that is based on oppression to try and liberate oneself again with just a cute little, a couple of cute little tweaks, whether they're legislative or in this case, political tweaks. I mean, it shows kind of his inexperience there. I don't know. Do you have any commentary on that? Because I think that's something that we're still like dealing with, you know, at this point, like 80 years later, 70 years later, 
people that, that think that, you again, it's just, they're reformers. We'll just call it. This is the difference between a reformer and a revolutionary. And, and I get reformers. I get it. Like, revolution is scary, and, and there's going to be suffering, and there's going to be violence, and there's going to be problems. So I, I totally get reformers. In fact, I, I would argue maybe I'm probably more, I'm much more reformer, at least in practice, than, than, than I'd like to be. But regardless, what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think that and we see it to this day. People, you know, go into law or they go into politics thinking they can, like, fix it there, and then they end up just becoming part of the problem. I don't know. I mean, I think what you said is correct, that oftentimes the story of someone being radicalized involves a history of attempts at trying to fix the system from within and then realizing that that's impossible. Another example off the top of my head is Mandela. Same exact thing, right? right. Became a lawyer did the thing, worked for free, like got in, like became radicalized as a result of realizing that the system was not changing through these avenues. It's not built to change. Like, like if you look at these constitutions, Cuban constitutions or French constitutions or American constitutions, like we, we celebrate them because we've been socialized, more or less indoctrinated to celebrate them without actually like reading all of the fine print. These are documents that basically set up, and, and, and don't even get me started on capitalism, but like at least politically speaking, to make change as slow and gradual and inconsequential as possible. Mm -hmm. That's what they're designed for. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, they, they'll never be radical. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all of this is put aside. Really, another eye-opening event happens in 1952 when the aforementioned Florencio Batista um, uh, succeeds in a coup in 1952. And it puts everything that Castro had been working on, both his legal practice and his running for political office, it, it basically just destroys those. There's, those are no longer an option. Cuba is now under a military dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So that goes away. So this is basically like throw it in his face. Like basically, okay, I've been trying to play the game. I've been trying to do the right thing. Yes, I'm a little bit radical for some views, but like I'm still playing the game. Right, I'm doing everything legally, quote unquote, um, and and then this guy comes along and just takes over the government, and now we're all just supposed to like lay here and take it, mm -hmm. like pass, like hard pass. Anyway, Castro and the Cubans become even more miserable under the Batista regime. Ultimately, it nullifies like Castro's political campaigns, so all attempts at legal recourse for like the ills that um, Cuban society are. Our feeling are they, like they go, they go away. The constitution fails. All of this fails. He comes to the conclusion, and again, I'm fast forwarding through some things here, that violence might indeed be the only answer. And eventually something called the movement coalesces. It gets a better name later. At least it's like, I think that's a better name. I love it. You like the movement? Yeah. Um, the movement. The movement coalesces around Castro and about 164 other revolutionary thinkers in Cuba or actors, uh, including, of course, his very famous or almost as famous brother, Raul Castro. He's also involved. And they eventually decide that this movement needs to like actually like do something extra legal. And they attack the very famous Moncada, their Moncada barracks. They're now like kind of like a museum or like preserved in Cuba. Um, maybe we'll throw up an image at this point in time of these Moncada bar barracks. They attack these on July 26th of 1953. And their goal is to essentially like seize the weaponry there because they're, 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 I mean, they're young guys. They don't have like the same arms and weaponry of the Batista government. Um, and so that's their, their primary goal. I want to like pause for a second, like this symbolic act of attacking Moncada barracks. We, we think about like symbolic acts. We think about tea parties in Boston, or we think about storming of Bastilles as we've talked about in prior episodes. What's your take on like the symbolism of the 
the attempted, it is attempted, this one doesn't work, the attempted mm -hmm. seizure of the Moncada barracks. No, I think you just said, right, it, it represents, in this case, the Batista regime because it's, it's literally military barracks, right? He, and it is, it, it fails and people die, like revolutionaries die, soldiers and police die, like there is, there is a standoff, they're shooting, um, but it ultimately fails. He is caught, put on trial and gives arguably his most famous speech of which we have an entire like separate episode like dedicated to. It's called History Will Absolve Me. So I'm not going to like read from it now because we actually have it a whole episode. Um, it's linked um, off to somewhere. I don't know where I'm at. It's linked <laughs> somewhere. But check that out where we go through like Castro's History Will Absolve Me. Actually, we only go through part of it, but like the most juicy part. Okay. Anyway, he's caught. Mirta, during this time, gets a job because of her family connections working for the government and they eventually divorce um, and it's while he's in jail that this all takes place because, of course, she doesn't want to be married, uh, I suppose, while she's in jail. I, I mean, I guess I can't get inside this, the, the, her head. That's not very fair of me. But I would assume that him being in jail plays plays a role. Well, also, like, I'm sure she's being pressured by her family who is right. sympathetic to the regime, right? Right. Um, but, well, not too sympathetic. But they are. They, they're, they're playing the game, I guess, right. which is what the bourgeoisie does. It's during... Um, this uh, time in jail that the movement gets a much better name. It's called MR267 after this. And he names the movement this in memory of his fallen comrades at Moncada, at the Moncada barracks. It took place on July 26th, so now it'll be MR267. And you'll even see this in like old pictures and footage. You'll see this like written on sleeves, like mm -hmm. MR267. Well, that's where the name comes from. The, um, I guess, failed um, seizure of the Moncada barracks on July 26th, 1953. Okay. Eventually, though, he gets pardoned, which is just so crazy to me that, like, I mean, you know, like I said, we, we want this revolution to happen, right? Like, like whatever, hindsight, right? We want this revolution to happen, but he eventually gets pardoned. And it's always super interesting to me that the Batista regime eventually pardons yeah. this guy that, that, that attacked this, like, military location. Um, this pardon is partially due to Mirta's government's con or, or Mirta and her family's government connections. This really helps fil facilitates Castro's pardon because some of the other guys did not get pardoned. So I think it helps. Anyway, his pardon uh, makes him, uh, motivates him to eventually leave the country. He bounces to Mexico, uh, where through Raul, he, of course, meets the aforementioned other revolutionary icon we want to talk about, Ernesto Guevara, better known as Che. They also, of course, are briefly arrested in Mexico and somewhere along the line, depending on what source you look at. And there are so many sources, so many documentaries. Cuba Libre is a good one. Um, I, there's a couple others that I can't think of right now that we, we use in classes. But somewhere along the line, he also makes a early KGB contact, which will come back um, into the narrative here in a second. So we're going to leave Castro there. And now get, I mean, that's his backstory, and do a bi brief bio on Ernesto Guevara, of course. And I, I, I don't know which one's more famous or infamous, but regardless, this is the guy that's on T-shirts, so maybe it's, maybe it's Che. Mm -hmm. um, che uh, was born in 1928, and he was assassinated um, in 1967. And I, I shouldn't even say assassinated. He's murdered. He's flat out murdered uh, in 1967, but we'll get to that in, in a little bit. Che uh, was born to a middle-class family. Um, he is not Cuban. I must stress that Che is from Argentina. He is from um, a little bit further down in South America. 
Um, but he didn't have an, a, a rough up, upbringing by any stretch of the imagination. They're middle to upper middle class family. They're leftist leaning. I must stress that. They're heavily leftist leaning. So I don't know what we would call them. Uh, I don't want to call them like a bourgeois family if they're leftist leaning and introducing him to very like, like mm-hmm. philosophy at such an early age. But regardless, like that's how he grew up. He's, he's, he's raised in this left leaning, like upper middle class family in Argentina, um, just outside like Buenos Aires. Anyway, he showed an affinity uh, for the poor and also somewhat of a rebellious nature, um, which his his father is said to have uh, attributed to the fact that he has some Irish heritage in his past. Don't get us started on the Irish revolutionary nature. It seems like every semester there's a student that is like like beating down the door for us to teach Irish revolutions, and we're just not going to do that because uh, not that we don't like Irish revolutions, but I have, as the historian, I do zero Irish history. That is not a history I do anything about, and 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 it's just not going to happen for us. So, <laughs> moving on. Um, I mean, there's YouTube songs about it, right? We can mm-hmm. like it. What is it? I don't know. Whatever Sunday, bloody Sunday. That's that's what I've got about the Irish revolutions. Thanks, Bono. Um, Okay, he is extremely well read from an early age. I mean, he's reading everything from like Aristotle to Siddhartha Gautama, i.e., the Buddha, to Bertrand Russell, to Nietzsche, to Kafka, to Freud. These are things that like he would read as like a teenager. Like our teenagers are like like playing Fortnite, and and this guy's reading Nietzsche. Uh, Anyway, Mm -hmm. just so we know. Um, it's a completely different era. Maybe Fortnite will have some sort of profound political impact later on. In yeah, the, they'll be doing a podcast in 100 years. That like, the, he was playing Fortnite while our kids are doing whatever. Yeah, like, like whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. Drinking Drano, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, anyway. He enters the University of Buenos Aires to study medicine. So Castro is going to help the world make the world a better place by being a lawyer. Uh, che is going to make the world a better place by being a doctor. Um, his last year, he takes like a little bit of a gap between like finishing up his, his degree in medicine to go on, um, an epic road trip. One of the most epic road trips that most people that at least on the left are vaguely aware of. It's, it's the, it's the motorcycle trip where he's basically going to tour, tour as much of South America as he can on the back of, I think it's like a Norton 500 motorcycle. And he's going to bring his cousin and like his friend, uh, Alberto Granado with him. And they, it is, it's an amazing journey. I don't have time to describe everything uh, of this journey. And we actually have all of the events of the journey because he kept a diary like that. He was just that kind of guy that would keep a diary the whole time of everything that took place on this epic journey. Um, and it is, I mean, it's called the Motorcycle Diaries, by the way. Like, if you want to read them, they're available free online in PDF, so you can read them. There's also numerous, um, like, like documentaries about the Motorcycle Diaries. And most importantly, my favorite is the is the adaptation, the dramatic adaptation starring, I think, Gail Garcia Bernal, just called the Motorcycle Diaries. It came out, I don't know, early 2000s or something like that. It's kind of old, but it's super good. It's super good movie. Anyway, if you want more on uh, Che Guevara's epic transformative journey, it's the Motorcycle Diaries. Um, the journey is important because it changes him quite a bit though. Like it is, it's a transformative, um, um, journey, uh, so to speak, both, I would say like metaphorically and literally like, Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, he goes on this journey and, uh, and I think the journey was framed originally as like, yes, this is a young individual that just kind of wants to see more of the world and experience more of the world, but it's also kind of that cliche college like a college road trip where they want to go like get drunk 
meet women like that's mm-hmm. that's part of it as well so it's all but it, it it and i'm sure there's there actually is some of that that takes place along the journey but it ends up not being that kind of journey this journey changes che he basically goes on like through like outside of argentina he goes south into patagonia uh makes what is that like a right into chile if we're going south yeah whatever like anyway like my directions suck anyway mm-hmm. into chile and comes up through chile uh and then into peru and places like that and it's there that he experiences not necessarily what he thought he might like there is fun to be had don't get me wrong but he also experiences like exploitation exploitation that he didn't necessarily see a lot growing up in a middle to upper middle class family in argentina um he's a little bit insulated from like the level of colonial and imperial exploitation he's not ignorant to it as a kid growing up it's but it, but it's something to read about it in newspapers or in studies and it's something completely different to like see it and live it. And this really begins to change him. There's this like famous example where he ends up outside a Cuban mine, not a Cuban, excuse me, a Chilean mine. Uh, I don't remember what they're mining there, but he sees like these people are literally living day to day. And like the truck pulls up and it's basically like you get to pick like every day, whether you're going to eat that day based on the fact, based on the whims of a dude on the back of a truck saying, you get to work today, you get to work today, you get to work today. And every day you still have to get up early and show up there to see if you get to work that day. Mm-hmm. And he ends up hanging out with one of the families there. I think a husband and wife who also have like some socialist and communist ties and begin to like have these conversations with them. And it really gets him thinking. Um, there are numerous other like stops on his journey, but eventually they're supposed to go to a leper colony along the Amazon River. And this is kind of a life-changing event there. Like, he's supposed to go there because they had already pre-planned this, like, stop there for a couple weeks as a uh, a medical internship. Like, they're going to, like, basically, like, help treat these lepers and get some experience and throw it probably on a resume so that they can get jobs later. Um, che is a doctor, and I think uh, Alberto in, in pharmaceuticals, I think he wants to be a pharmacist, I think. Don't quote me on that. Correct me in the comments if I'm wrong. But anyway, like that's kind of the goal there. But it's there that we see a little bit more of the transformation. And he begins to see like the separation of how individuals, even those that are the best intentioned, begin to like segregate and separate even the people they're trying to help. Like the lepers are on one side of the Amazon River and the uh, the, the the nurses, the priests, because it's Catholic run, and the nuns are all on the other side. And like you're supposed to limit your contact. And yes, you're giving them medicine and you're feeding them, but you're also treating them as like aliens, as like, I mean, you, the, the term exists, as lepers, like you're treating mm-hmm. them this way. So one of the like iconic moments, at least as depicted in film and in his version of events in his diary, is that his first trip across the river to go to the actual leper colony, um, he doesn't wear the masks, he doesn't wear the gloves, finds the first like like leper he can shakes their hand like and 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 from there like it shows kind of i guess like this this very different way of approaching problems and Che, like he's like immunocompromised and everything like he has asthma and all these other things so this was kind of like this was very brave of him mm-hmm. like medicine wasn't nearly as advanced as it is now you know in the 1950s or 1940s or whatever it is right so i don't know anyway uh, he spends a couple weeks there ends up staying on the leper side of the camp like for his entire like um, time there, you know, helps build shelters, plays, plays football, like all of these things makes these amazing connections and eventually has to like take off. But I think that kind of like made a lasting impact on him that sometimes even again, under the systems that the ideological and material systems and dominant discourses that, um, we are living under, even the best intentioned application of those is still, I don't want to say I mean, it's exploitative, but that's not what he experiences. They're not exploiting the lepers, but it's still, what's the word I'm looking for? 
I mean, it's divisive, right? It's somewhat dehumanizing. It's, yeah, I mean, they are, they treat them as, like, the other, right? Different than them. Uh, anyway, after this journey that, like, really changes him, like, he still wants to be a doctor, and he's going to go back and finish his degree and do those types of things, but now he has a little bit more of a revolutionary ethos behind yeah, him. Yeah, I like, wanted, like, I've, all, I've read The Motorcycle Diaries multiple times, clearly seen the movie. I think it's a really, really good example of how this, like, basically upper-middle-class kid that wanted to be a doctor took a road trip just as, like, a last hurrah as this college student, and how the experiences that happened to him on this road trip and the things that he sees, like, I specifically remember the story of being at the Chilean mine and so forth, like, they don't fully radicalize him, but they definitely plant the seed of how his life is going to take a very different trajectory from just being a doctor to living out the rest of his life as a professional revolutionary and getting murdered uh, as a result. In fact, like we use this as an example in class too. People often ask us, like sometimes, like in our classes, especially more ideologically based classes, rather we critique, like even like the institution of like higher education, things along those lines. We critique it, even though we work there, and it being like part of like the the dominant discourse and all that other stuff. Students often ask us, okay, well, like you're sitting here telling us we're wasting thousands of dollars on an education that might only at best give us a piece of paper that grants us the right to serve people at Chile, Chili's. I almost said Chile. Chile's. Yeah, <laughs> at, at Chili's or Applebee's or whatever. And, and, we, and we make those jokes all the time in class. But like, if you have a choice between dumping thousands of dollars into a couple of credits or thousands of dollars into, into a road trip or travel, the travel is going to be an exponentially better education. 10 times out of 10. 10 times out of 10. Not 9 out of 10. Not 8 out of 10. 10 times out of 10, you will learn more from, from, from a travel. I'm not saying everyone can just get on a motorcycle and ride around Latin America, but, but something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Okay. Uh, he ends up leaving Argentina again after uh, uh, working on some more schooling in 1953, and he shows up in Central America this time. Um, he didn't make it all the way up there, I suppose, the first time, so now he goes up to Central America um, and it is there that he experiences the horrors of what we now um, unfondly, fondly call banana republics. The creation of banana republics, strictly corporate um, American corporate exploitation of Latin American countries, often for the cultivation of singular monoculture, mono or mono. That's the word I'm looking for, right? Yeah, monoculture uh, productivity. Uh, whether it's sugar in Cuba or bananas in somewhere else, like that's where the term comes from, banana republics, or or shit pineapple in Hawaii. Um, like these are that's not Latin America, but you get the idea. This is the type of thing that he begins to experience. I mean, the um, fact that there's a clothing brand called Banana Republic is, and the fact that it costs as much as it does, I, I cannot believe that brand still exists. Mm -hmm. um, gross. Anyway, it's in Guatemala specifically that he witnesses like how far those horrors go. It's not just about labor exploitation or land, like co controlling uh, controlling the use of land um, and resources, etc. It actually becomes rather violent. In Guatemala, he witnesses the uh, the CIA coup of Jacobo or Jacobo Arbenz. Um, Essentially what Arbenz was trying to do, and he was a, a very left-leaning, um, but elected, democratically elected leader of Guatemala. Again, the Guatemalan people in the sovereign nation of Guatemala voted to follow Arbenz. Um, and one of the things that they wanted to follow was his attempt to end something called the latifundia, which Che talks about in On the Cuban Economy. Long story short, it is an exploitative plantation that is... 
uh, I mean, it's a plantation. It's a plantation, but instead of like outright full blown like slaves, now you have like campesino workers that are kind of tied to the land, not necessarily it's kind of like, like feudalism. It's like feudalism and slavery kind of mixed together. Yeah, but the contracts are not like based on like chivalry and honor or anything. Yeah. These these are now like the the contracts are basically because of forced dependence of this campesino class on mm-hmm. the exploitative like landowners and their corporate overlords or backers. Anyway, he basically wants to abolish that system and redistribute land as equitably as possible among all the Guatemalan campesinos. And of course, we know that American corporations are not going to stand for such injustice of their land that they somehow think they own in other people's sovereign nations. God, we're gross. Um, One of these is the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company. I must stress this. This is not necessarily full-blown like the United States government. This is a company. This is the softer form of colonialism. United Fruit Company. Anyway, the United Fruit Company is able to make a big enough fuss that the American government does take notice, and specifically a new uh, 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 branch of the government, the Central Intelligence Agency. And it is new. Like, it's this is 1953. Like, they had just performed one of their first uh, successful coups in Iran uh, a year earlier. Um, to get rid of uh, 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 Mohammed Mossadegh, who was doing something similar, except not with fruit, but with oil. He was going to nationalize Iranian oil, and of course, Americans and Brits could not stand for Iran profiting uh, from a resource that's on Iranian land, so they threw a fit, and uh, the CIA showed up and overthrew a democratically elected leader in 1953. They're going to do the same thing in 1954 in Guatemala, except now it has to do with fruit. Um, so we're just, uh, there, there's there's nothing too trivial for, for us to, I guess, get our hands in and the operation, and, and you can find the uh, the documents, they've been declassified now on the CIA's own website. It's called Operation PB Success. Peanut butter, not PB Success. That's what I think of. It's launched in 1954. Again, you can go through like the, the files and the documents, as many of you, some of the language is redacted, but you can see what, what basically happened in 1954. The reason I'm like long-winded here is Che is there while this happens. So he's watching it happen like in real time. In fact, this is his, these are his thoughts verbatim on this. He says, the last Latin American revolutionary democracy, that of Jacobo Arbenz, failed as a result of the cold premeditated aggression carried out by the United States. Its visible head was the Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, a man who through a rare coincidence was also a stockholder and attorney for the United Fruit Company. So this guy, this asshole, John Foster Dulles, I mean, we've got like airports named after this dude, whatever. He uses his power in the government for his own private interest. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, no commentary needed. Take what you want from that. He ends up, Che, during, on, before we move on. I, I mean, I'm so, so pissed I can't United even Fruit Company rebrand and it's now Chiquita, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's no, like, every time you have a banana, because as far as I know, I can't think of a single other banana brand. Maybe Dole has some or something. Like, you're still perpetuating this company still to this day, which is just ridiculous. Is it Chiquita now? I don't know. I'll Google it while you're... Yeah, let's, let's make let's not, uh, let's not let's make our correction now. But yeah, well, I think... Uh, yeah, they definitely rebranded. I just don't know what they rebranded to. Okay. Anyway, while well, 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 Nick's looking that up for us... Um, Guevara watches this happen. He's basically forced to flee Guatemala. He takes refuge in the Argentine consulate when Arbenz is forced from power in Guatemala. And he watches, of course, the mass executions that begin to take place under the military junta under the U.S. puppet Armas. 
Um, while these executions are taking place, he flees the consulate in Guatemala and ends up in Mexico. I must stress, he ends up in Mexico at the same time we left off with Fidel Castro, and this is where we're going to pick up. Their chance meeting in Mexico, both fleeing brutal U.S.-backed dictators, one in Cuba, one in Guatemala. 1984, United Fruit Company rebranded to Chiquita. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. While these two revolutionary icons, now we've got the iconography, we got how they became the way they were, like what happened in their lives. Also just think of like, this isn't myth, but like the mythology, of the, the, the whole narrative of these two revolutionary heroes, their lives just happened to like intersect in Mexico at this time, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But here's another thing about the mythos of Cuba that is wrong from the revolutionary's point. See, we almost sometimes build Castro and Che up too much because the revolution was already underway while they were gone and didn't need them. Students throughout Cuba had already began to revolt on their own against the oppression that they were experiencing, especially in the cities, uh, uh, especially, of course, in Havana. A, uh, a Basically, a council had, had been formed while these two were gone. It was called the Directorio Revolucion Revolucionario... Ah, oh, gosh, my Spanish is... Be I'm butchering it. Estudia Dantil. Revolutionary, Student Revolutionary Directorate. That's all I'm trying to spit out. <laughs> I should have just done it in English this time. Okay. Anyway, the Student Revolutionary Directorate is established in 1954 alongside other movements, and many were actually in contradi contradiction to Castro uh, himself before he even left. Some of them have different like political leanings. Some of them just want a little bit more radical form of republicanism. Some of them are okay with like the free market, but like a little bit of socialism like dipped in here for like little things like education or healthcare or something along those lines. All of that is kind of still being hashed out. But what they do all agree on is... They need U.S. imperialism gone. They need the dictator gone. That they all can agree upon. Okay? Um, it's during this period of time after the chance meeting of Che um, and Fidel and a couple other important revolutionaries in Mexico that they decide they are going to join the revolutionary fray. They are going to invade uh, Cuba. And for Castro, it's not really invading. It's basically going home um, in 1956. They're going to take to the seas. On November 25th of 1956, they board a yacht they were able to secure. And it is not a nice yacht that you're thinking of. This is like an absolutely like it's just a piece of junk, like an old one. And it's called the Grandma, which is also now like a symbolic it symbolizes the revolution, right? It's like it's it's on display in Cuba still to this day. Like, yeah, you know, like, we use the term yacht, but, like, it's a boat, let's be honest. Like, yeah. It's not a... Yeah. I mean, like, the yacht is just the official, I think, type of boat it is yeah. or something like that. Like, yeah, but it is, it's... it's. I mean, isn't the occupancy, like, 20 or something that it was, like, actually rated for? Yeah, it is not a super nice boat, but they decide that they're going to, like, this this brave sea landing. It's my favorite like, part of the whole story. Yeah, they're going to cross, like, the Gulf of Mexico and, like, leave, I think it's Veracruz. Yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm pretty sure it's, yeah, Veracruz. They leave Veracruz and they're going to end up in Cuba on, like, the south eastern part of Cuba, like uh, the Sierra Maestra, which we'll talk about here in a second. They're going to land on this coast, and they're basically going to invade with, count them, 82 fighters. Like, 82 fighters are going to invade Cuba. So let's paint this picture. They are go There's 82 of them. They get on this boat. That only holds, like, 20 to yeah, 25 Yeah, I remember it's 20 or 25 people yeah. was the actual, like, capacity. 82 of them get on this boat for 20 and make the journey across the sea from Mexico to Cuba right. to start... 
or continue or whatever, lead this revolution against a U.S.-backed totalitarian dictator. They have super limited munitions. Many of them are not used to the sea. They're like puking and getting sick overboard. But eventually they do arrive about a week later. If they left on the 25th of November, they arrive on December 2nd uh, in Nicaragua, uh, where I think I mispronounced it, but whatever, where they immediately um, deboard and head to the mountains. Um, unfortunately, pretty quick after a, a, a battle, I, I don't even know if I want to call it a battle, an attack, conflict, combat takes place on December 5th. And by the end of this combat, there's actually only 20 surviving of the original 82 between like, you know, trouble at landing and then the fighting three days later. Only 20 of these original 82 freedom fighters are left. How the hell are 20 revolutionary revolutionaries going to seize the entire island of Cuba? I mean, they do it. We already know. We have the luxury of hindsight. But how are they going to do this? So... After this initial setback, organization occurs as they kind of flee into the mountains of the Sierra Maestra. And leadership, of course, coalesces around um, the Castros, uh, predominantly Fidel, but to a lesser degree, Raul. But around them also, of course, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara, um, Camilio, uh, Camilio Cienfuegos. And surprising for a lot of people that like to crap on the Cuban Revolution for its various ideological um, insinuations or whatever um, connections, um, Celia Sanchez and Haiti Santa Maria. So these two women also are put into uh, positions of leadership and not out of like desperation or anything like that. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned when I was talking about like Castro's belief system um, regarding like racial equality, but he was also um, much more forward thinking in terms of gender equality um, than anybody really was in the 1940s and 50s. Like, I mean, that was a big part of like kind of challenging Latin American machismo and like. Mm -hmm. And again, it's such a big surprise because let me be blunt, like his dictatorship is marked with persecuting specifically people um, uh, of the LGBTQ plus community. He that is something that he was never forward thinking on. He was extremely backward thinking on that. We must say that. So it's always surprising, though, that he was very forward thinking in terms of just the binary gender paradigm and equitability under the binary gender paradigm, I think mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, Celia and Haiti are put in positions of, of leadership. They spend months gathering rural support in the Sierra Maestra while monitoring the urban situation and reaching out for allies. So basically they spend like months in the mountains, like reaching out to either like, like small stakes landholders that are Cuban or campesino workers or whoever it might be at the unemployed all here in the so southeastern part of Cuba, basically making these connections and at least gathering maybe not like troops formally that we would call them, but at least a support network discussing what their goals are and basically winning the hearts and minds of the people for lack of a better term. They spend months doing this mm -hmm. um, in the jungle mountains. Meanwhile, the revolution is, like I said, somewhat underway back in the cities. The students, the directorio, ends up storming the presidential palace in March of 1957, um, and they attempt to take over all of the radio stations in Havana at the same time. So the students are are already doing things like they're already performing like militant attempted takeovers. It fails though. They are not able to secure these locations. First, the president's not there. Um, and then secondly, um, a big shootout takes out, takes place in one of the radio stations where there's a wonderful picture of it that we use in classes that maybe we'll, we'll link to it here of like the bullet holes at the radio station, things along those lines. Anyway, the leader of the student movement, uh, at least in name, Echeverria is killed during one of these like sieges. So the movement loses a little bit of its, um, the student movement loses a little bit of its 
I don't even know what the word I'm looking momentum. for. Momentum when Echeverria is killed um, during this during this time period. Um, okay. Um, this leads to some U.S. interest, however. And the reason this is important is because most people are, are, are vaguely aware the United States is, is imperially controlling much of what's going on in Cuba. And they're giving arms to the Cuban military and all this other stuff. And even Americans are kind of watching at home like, okay, so we have Cuban college students being shot by the police in Havana. Um, and we have this close connection with Havana. Um, we don't want to have this close connection as much anymore. It's a bad public relations look, if we're mm -hmm. honest. It's bad for U.S. military weapons, even though they're not being used by the U.S. military, they're using, being used by, by Cubans, um, to be used in this way, to kill like college students, just basically like fighting for their rights, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, and, and, and it is. This is, again, this is the 1950s. This is still, whatever, 15, 16 years before like the Kent State Massacre in Ohio and things like right. that. Like this is, so, so there was still a little, little bit of more of a, a conscience, maybe, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, it's a bad look, and the United States wants to begin to distance itself a little bit from the Batista regime because of what happened with Echeverria and these college students being being murdered. Um, however, U.S. criminals that are in Cuba still wildly support, of course, the Batista dictatorship. They're okay with it. Survivors uh, of these student movements eventually flee the cities and form other movements in the rural area, in rural areas, which is interesting because they basically flee to where uh, to some of the places where Castro and Che and Cienfuegos and these other guys are basically doing like this 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 movement building and movement branding. So they actually come into contact here, and again, even though they might not all agree ideologically, they agree materially with the fact that again, U.S. imperialism has to go, Batista has to go. So they're willing to set aside their political di differences to work together for this very important um, um, goal. And oftentimes that's one of the things we even teach in the class called resistance revolution is this idea that that oftentimes like revolutions get bogged down in political difference and, and, and the left is fractured and blah, 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 blah. But to have a successful revolution, you need a very clear target, regardless mm -hmm. of political difference. And, and, and that's one of the things that, that fails most Western revolutions now is that they never get past the political difference part. They can never, they can't even get past that to find that very simple goal. Like, yeah, exactly. So anyway, Cuba is an example where they were able to do so. Um, these survivors flee and form other movements, one of which, of course, is called the 13th of March movement, which sounds very similar to MR-267, but it is a different movement, mostly made up of by students. Um, anyway, meanwhile, uh, MR-267 is winning minor skirmishes in the mountains against uh, small Batista garrisons, um, and uh, all because they have all of the support of the local people, whereas the military does not. So when formal skirmishes really begin, the advantage in terms of intel and food and shelter and ammunition, the people are willing to like, like gather these things and do these things for the revolutionaries and basically keep everything as, as much as they can away from the military. So it, even if they're not willing to fight themselves, these workers, these like just everyday civilians are, are still doing everything they can to help the revolutionaries while doing everything they can to hinder the efforts of the military to find the revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. So it's super effective. They're basically fighting for Cubans. They're able to get supplies clandestinely um, and the military, like I said, just gets no help from the locals. The revolutionaries also make use of something novel for those of you that are interested in, in revolutionary history. And Nick's going to even go further into this. We'll talk about it in a second, the Fulquismo and, and protracted warfare and things along those lines. But one of the novel things, at least in terms of revolutionary militancy, that comes from this time period is the use of what were called escop uh, escopateros, basically irregular troops. 
Um, these are troops that did not have to commit fully, full-time, all day, every day to hanging out with Che and Castro and Cienfuegos and, 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 and Celia Sanchez and etc. They got to basically be revolutionaries when they could be revolutionaries, when they weren't working or taking care of their family and things along those lines. Um, and I, I know that sounds like just something that you would naturally do, but it was actually kind of novel in terms of revolutionary practice at that moment in mm -hmm. time. I mean, I guess in a way, it's a little bit like Minutemen or something along those lines. I mean, a, a little similar in that, but like this use of irregular troops granted the the movements of the revolutionaries great like of freedom, like and and flexibility, like it really did, and I think that's important. By 1958, these little like measures had led to the Castros basically controlling almost all of the southern province, southern Oriente province, um, which is important. This is where propaganda begins to play a role. Once they, they controlled most of Oriental province, they were able to unleash one of the more famed 20th century-like propaganda campaigns, motivating the rest of the Cuban people to kind of join their cause in challenging the Batista dictatorship. Um, it, it really kicks off with the fact that after some intense fighting in the South, Batista or the Batista regime gets on the news and basically claims... Um, that Castro's dead. They killed Castro. They killed him. He's a martyr for the cause now, but your cause is dead because your leader is dead. Just like Echeverria was killed, Castro is now dead. Long live the regime, more or less, is what this propaganda mm -hmm. looks like. And um, Castro, of course, is not dead. Um, there are they, numerous people have tried to kill Castro, and he's not dead. Um, and he brings in um, a uh, somewhat famous journalist from the New York Times, uh, all the way down from the United States, a man named Herbert Matthews. And at this time, the Americans, at least the American public, are seeing Castro as kind of like a Robin Hood figure. Like, he's popular in the United States. He is seen as trying to fight, like, again, a dictatorship that's killing college kids in the streets. Like, they see him as, as, as somewhat heroic. So Matthews comes down here, and, like, after this interview, he gives an interview, uh, and there's pictures and everything like that, and it gets published in the New York Times... This exclusive interview, a cult of personality just blows up around Castro. He becomes almost like this Robin Hood-like figure. He's like literally, he's a Cuban Robin Hood, and he becomes so so popular. There's a uh, the article if you're if you're curious, you can find it online really easily. It's called "Leader of Revolt Found Still Alive," basically, and it also shows the regime to be liars, right? Mm -hmm. That they're 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 liars. Also during 1958, like doubling down on this like need to create propaganda is the establishment of a pirate radio station called Radio Rebelde, which is still now the main like radio station in Cuba. They have, their site is up and running right now and it's got news on it and it's super awesome and they have a cool history section about where they come from. Uh, you can go to it again right now and there are English versions of it. But yeah, Radio Rebelde is established in 1958 under the supervision uh, of course of Ernesto Che Guevara, but he doesn't really do a lot with the radio. It's really like the brainchild of Luis uh, Rodriguez, who's the main personality on air, and Carlos Franqui, who is brought in from um, Miami, Florida, of all places, which is super interesting given that dynamic now, to be the director of information. Um, eventually, 32 stations are established. I want to like kind of like ask Nick, like why? I mean, pirate radio now probably is so passe. You would never make any sort of social change. But in 1958, why do you think pirate radio was just... I mean, to be re to be blunt, revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, especially in Cuba in 1958, radio was still mainly the way that people got their news. So for the movement to reach this huge milestone of being able to establish its own radio station that eventually had a wide reach so that they could spread their own message over the radio waves was huge. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a big deal. Uh, like I said, 32 sta uh, stations are eventually established. 
Uh, most of the cast, like the the actual like episodes or whatever, besides some music and stuff, were propaganda. They were straight propaganda against the Batista regime. And I won't uh, sit here and even say all that propaganda was true. I mean, they lied. It's propaganda. Like they were basically just trying to get um, individuals to want to join the revolutionary cause. There were also calls. It's how they organized eventually a general strike, which we know are actually wildly effective, contrary to what uh, uh, our modern uh, educators and systems will tell us. Uh, general strikes are wildly effective, especially in capitalist-based economies where they don't know anything better than consumption and labor. Just stop. Just stop. You want to make social change? Stop consuming and stop going to work and you will get change tomorrow. I, we cannot stress this enough, but yet no one ever does it. Okay, anyway. General Strike um, is called for, uh, appeals to the military to become the real champions of Cuba. So this this radio station was actually, you, if you were serving in Batista's army, you would hear these broadcasts and they would appeal directly to you as one of the soldiers like, look, dude, what are you doing? You're Cuban. We're advocating for a better Cuba for Cubans. And you want, I mean, you want to sell out to like American sugar corporations? Like, okay. and, and it worked. Like a lot of the military, like just laid down their guns. They would announce uh, the eventual victories that they were going to have. And, of course, they spilled a bunch of Batista information because they had insiders, inside spies within the administration as well. And they were able to uh, spill some of Batista's uh, misinformation. Um, anyway, like, I mean, there, there's a couple of broadcasts that we use in class that are, are super short that are live from the time that are like primary sources. There's one of Che in 1959, which is basically translated. So if you jump on YouTube and look up Radio Rebelde, like original broadcast, you can actually find footage of them on, on YouTube. It's super cool. Um, in Castro's words, though, we'll, we'll, I'm going to quote Castro here. He says, Radio Rebelde truly became our means of mass communication to talk to the people, and it became a much listened to station. It was crucial for disseminating military information and played a key role throughout the war. I mean, that's kind of a super boring quote, but it came from Castro, so I kind of felt like, yeah, whatever. As far as, like, actual combat, I am not a military historian. It bores me to tears. Again, we've talked about this in other episodes on other things where we have to talk about war and stuff. Like, finding new and creative ways in which humans can kill other humans is super, like, I'm just not into it. So, whatever. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the military stratagems. Um, strategy, stratagem, yeah, whatever. Anyway, it is interesting to note, though, throughout each battle, Castro's forces, again, in each battle, they were outnumbered. Sometimes, like, by like hundreds, if not thousands. And it's always been kind of like up to the mythos of the Cuban revolution as to how Castro's forces kept winning these battles, being outnumbered by so many outgunned, outnumbered, and so on and so forth. And this is where we come to the idea that we would have to argue the propaganda, especially for the military, um, soldiers, the ones that were serving, started to work. Eventually, you get to a point, even as a soldier, no matter what oaths you take, and no matter what indoctrination you've endured to become a soldier in Batista's army or whatever it is, Shooting other Cubans, sometimes like friends or family, over ideological differences just doesn't seem to make a whole hell of a lot of sense, especially when you know you're not going to see any of the material benefits of this. Mm -hmm. Like you're literally fighting for a dictator or for corporations at this point in time. So, yeah, the troops are either fighting half-hearted, laying down their guns. There's also a lot of psychological fatigue for these soldiers. Uh, many of them have been trained in urban environments, and now they're fighting in the jungles, which, again, using Vietnam as an example, we know how that goes. Um, they're just, they're, they're just not going to win. Um, this is also most importantly where, uh, guerrilla warfare comes into play, i.e. Fakismo. Any thoughts on that? Nick is going to do a dedicate because he's, he's done the, all the research here, but he's going to dedicate an entire episode to it. But uh, do you have any like brief thoughts you want to throw in here? No, yeah. Like Jared said, we'll do a whole episode on that. It's also related to Mao's idea of protracted warfare, but it's military strategies for how 
small groups of militants can gain the upper hand strategically at fighting against a much larger uh, military force through using the environment and etc. Uh, in interesting ways. But check out our episode on that. Yeah, yeah. We have a whole episode on, on, on guerrilla warfare. And like I said, you can also read it. It's free everywhere. Just type in Che Guevara guerrilla warfare PDF and you can find it everywhere. Like all of his thoughts on, on guerrilla warfare uh, and what he learned both from his own experience as well as like learning from the experiences of Mao's China and so on and so forth. Okay. Uh, Algerians as well. Like, yeah. Okay. The last push for Batista, basically, again, by winning hearts and minds and all of these small-scale skirmishes, um, Castro's forces are making their way up from the south, and they're pushing into, like, the spine of the Cuban island, and there's, like, one last chance that Batista thinks they have, that Batista has to, like, really, like, just nip this thing in the bud before it really does spread throughout the island, and it's eventually called uh, by the Cuban military Operation Verano. Um, under the Cuban general uh, Campillo, they decide that they are going to blockade the Sierra Maestra, which have now basically become the revolutionaries' like base of operations, where they have all of like their strongest support. And he surrounds the Sierra Maestra, these jungle mountains, with 14 battalions, and they launch what is known as a purge attack in June of 1958, where basically these battalions are going to go like basically like through these jungles and just purge the revolutionaries. And you know, use your imagination what they mean by purge, but that's kind of the goal. The first attack, though, again, because of the knowledge, is, 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 is going to be immediately thwarted for a couple of first reasons. A, these soldiers don't have a vested stake in this fight. Secondly, who knows the Sierra Maestra better by now? These soldiers are like green as hell because they keep having to like forcefully conscript or recruit more soldiers because so many are leaving. So they don't know what they're doing. So who knows the Sierra? Who now is a little bit more battle-hardened? It's the revolutionaries. Um, and the first attack like reveals that Che knew exactly where and when it was coming. They had already laid out a complete minefield, and the and, and these soldiers run into a minefield. The first attack is a disaster for uh, for Kentio's forces. Um, yeah, I mean his men are just literally being blown up as they try and enter the Sierra. Uh, in terms of like the second attack, uh, major attack at the Battle of La Plata by Castro's forces. Um, it's, it's again, it's handled relatively easy by Castro's forces because of the experience they had and because of the conditions. There's mist. Uh, different accounts have it as like kind of like a very difficult like environment for people to see in. Anyway, Castro's forces eventually get this battalion under Kentio to surrender, only losing three revolutionaries, like against a, a formal like trained military. They're not that well trained because, again, they're all new recruits, but you get the idea. Um, there is a setback during this period of time. Cantillo's forces do win one battle. Uh, the third attack actually is successful where Castro is eventually, like, he's basically tricked into or goaded into, like, following, uh, the 17th Battalion out of the Sierra Maestra, essentially, or within, like, outside of a part of the Sierra Maestra. Essentially, like, they give the impression that Castro had won the battle, but they really hadn't. And so the 17th Battalion kind of, like, retreats out. Castro's forces follow, and then they re-like capture Castro's forces. The 17th Battalion does. They're trapped in the battle is called Los Mercedes. Uh, it's during this time, though, that they don't kill Castro, and he very shrewdly negotiates a ceasefire. During the negotiation process, he doesn't even care about the ceasefire, but during the negotiation process, it's like a six-day negotiation. His forces like secretly are like slowly evacuating the area. And so like he basically is just buying time. It's kind of cool. Kind of cool that that happened. Anyway, um, as far as the final military offensive after Operation Verano proves to be like a flop and like Castro's forces are all basically intact, 
they're using captured weapons and smuggled gear from Operation Verano, um, and he decides to, like, reverse the attack. He unleashes a four-pronged attack himself out of Oriente Province, that southeastern part of of Cuba. And then by August of 1988, this four-pronged attack, led by, like, again, himself and Che and Cienfuegos, all the municipalities in Oriente end up under control by the end of 1958. Che and Cienfuegos continue the march up like the spine of the Cuban island all the way to the center, where they end up meeting with like a mix and match group of revolutionaries. Some of them are like left over from the student directory. Uh, some are other different kinds of revolutionary rebels. And again, this is where they decide that they are going to have at least a tempered temporary mutual cooperation. They're going to at least seize the island and we'll hash out the political differences later. I must stress, as, as nicely as we're painting like Che and Castro, some of these differences are actually going to lead to some violence later by the regime against fellow revolutionaries. I must stress that. But at this moment in time, it's not a thing. They're all going to work together for this common goal. Uh, Cienvuegos goes on to win a couple of battles. I'm not even going to try and pronounce some of the names of the battles that he wins, but he does. He goes on to win some battles. The Battle of Santa Clara ends up being a joint strike by Che, Cienfuegos, and three wings of the student directory. Um, and it's kind of a major turning point in the revolutionary process, at least military. One of these wings is, interestingly enough, led by a U.S. Army soldier who went AWOL. Uh, his name is William Alexander Morgan. He went on to capture the town of Cienfuegos, not, not, not the revolutionary leader, the town of Cienfuegos, and also helped put down a coup from Dominican Republic dictator Trujillo. Um, it is because of his actions here in helping the revolutionaries and challenging their dictator in U.S.-sponsored dictator in Dominican Republic that the United States eventually revokes William Alexander Morgan's citizenship. Um, also because he was AWOL. But long story short, he was in the U.S. Army, disenfranchised, disenchanted with the dis the, the way things were going for him, and so he decides to join this this kind of more radical movement here in the Caribbean. Any thoughts on William Morgan? That's a um, super interesting story. It is interesting. It's also super sad that eventually Castro will turn on Morgan, and I must stress that he ends up dead um, as, as the Castro regime turns on Morgan later. Um, but for now, he uh, is helping the revolutionaries. Batista eventually flees to the Dominican Republic um, himself, like the 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 as as Castro's forces seize more and more of the island, he ends up like running scared to the beginning Dominican Republic to hang out with another U.S. puppet there, the aforementioned Rafael Trujillo and his successors. Um, however, with the help of Radio Rebelde and the people, Castro enters Santiago de Cuba without a fight, one of the main cities um, in the south. Um, from the military. In the meantime, Che and Cienfuegos enter Havana on January 3rd of 1959, and basically major, like, military... Once Batista leaves, like, most of the military operations are done. And um, Emmanuel Yeo takes office as the new president. Castro doesn't immediately become dictator, by the way. That, that, there is a process behind that. So this guy named Emmanuel uh, Yeo takes office as the new president of Cuba on January 3rd of 1959. Castro himself, later on, and there's great footage of this, again, on YouTube, in, the, in Havana himself, and it's kind of like this mm -hmm. big celebration. But immediate aftermath of the successful um, Cuban Revolution. We must kind of like talk about this. Um, in the immediate aftermath, uh, Fidel Castro ends up heading to the United States for 11 days. He's basically like, look guys, like we don't like your imperialism or your soft colonialism or whatever, capitalist exploitation and all of those things, but that doesn't mean we need to be enemies. We basically liberated the island for autonomy. We're just going to be calling our own shots now. We are more than happy to enter into equitable political and economic 
um, um, engagements with you, but you are no longer calling the shots. Cuba is Cuba's, but it doesn't mean we have to hate each other. Like, let's just, we're independent now. Let's renegotiate the way this relationship's going to be. How did the U.S. receive Castro? Hard pass. Yeah. You can't have a relationship, apparently, with the United States that's equitable. Mm -hmm. um, it is going to be exploitative. So they said hard pass to Castro. In fact, most of the people, including Dwight D. Eisenhower at the time, who was the president, refused to even meet with Castro. And I must stress, Castro was not a communist. He would refuse to call himself a communist at this point in time. Further, I must stress that he reached out to the United States first. So all of you that are eventually going to freak out about Cuban missile crises and whatnot that we're going to be talking about maybe in future episodes, I must stress the United States had first crack at an equitable relationship with Cuba, not Moscow. Mm -hmm. And the United States made the bed that it had to lie in. Uh, it's interesting to note Richard Nixon eventually does briefly uh, meet with Castro and tries to steer him more towards like a capitalist um, um, frame, framework. So I guess he did get to meet with Nixon for a minute uh, before Nixon becomes obviously well before Nixon becomes president. But anyway, while Castro is doing this in the immediate aftermath in Cuba, he's reaching out to the United States. Batista's agents, cops, soldiers, advisors, they're all being, they've all been round up and they are being tried. And I must stress they are being executed for what Castro's regime is calling human rights violations. This is the one part of the Cuban revolution that all detract detractors of Che or Castro like point to. And I can't really argue with them. The executions did indeed take place. But what I can say is that Every revolution, including the American War for Independence, or the French Revolution, or the Russian Revolution, or whatever revolution, this happens in every one of them. I, I can just say that. I am not rationalizing this, as you guys have kind of picked up uh, if you've listened to other uh, episodes of ours that I'm really not a fan of violence of any kind. So I, don't, I also cannot rationalize these executions, but they happen. I must stress that they happen. They happen in Cuba, but they also happen in other revolutions. And I must stress, it's happening in most sources in the hundreds, not like the thousands like some of these other revolutions mm -hmm. that are wildly celebrated in Western civilization. No, these ones are happening in like the hundreds. For example, Che himself directly oversaw between 200 and 270 executions at uh, Santiago and the La Cabana Fortress. So those are the ones that Che directly oversaw. And he did. I, you can't remove this from his character. He did oversee these executions. They did indeed happen. There's no saying that they didn't happen. Um, at the same time, like we learned in Myth is America, there's also not saying that George Washington ordered over 200 executions of his own troops for mutinies or running away. Like, I mean, so why is one seen as a hero under certain political purviews and the other not? I mean, it clearly shows, like, again, the bias lenses in which we construct our histories. So anyway, okay. For me, both are wrong. That's, that's what I'll say. Che is wrong. Washington is wrong. How about, again, why can't we just do that? Right. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Um, most of the former Batista cooperatives or people that cooperated with the Batista regime or part of the Batista regime did not get executed. Most are exiled. They're forced to like get out. And of course we see a vast majority of them, uh, go the, I don't know, what is it? 60 to 90 miles, uh, north to Florida, end up in Miami. And they are still hateful to this day about the revolution. They, you, you want, um, one of the like least balanced takes on the Cuban revolution, go to Miami. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, I get it. Like you were forced to leave your country, but you were forced to leave a country in which you were exploiting your own people, or at least your family was like, I, I struggle with this one. I'm not Cuban. So I guess I don't have a vested stake here. Any thoughts? Like, no, I think like just, you, you mad bro? Like, I mean, like, exactly. And like, 
I think this is a huge reason that people view in the United States the Cuban Revolution the way that they do, because everyone that was forced to leave Cuba and come to America and then shape the narrative there obviously hated everything that happened in the revolution because they were exiles. And they're now here basically yeah. controlling the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and that doesn't mean we celebrate everything that happened in the Cuban revolution. We're about to talk about some more things here, but it must be stressed. Like you lost, you're angry, you're mad. And here's the thing. This is the most important thing that I think people lose sight of. You lost your ability to exploit your fellow countrymen. And that's what your butt hurt about still. Mm-hmm. That's what it really was, right? Like when yeah. we break it down to the nuts and bolts, you're mad that you lost that ability. Now, somebody else is exploiting them, we would argue, but th- that's what you're mad about? Exactly. Okay. Anyway. Like your land was taken, so forth, your house was seized, but it's because you had property that wasn't rightfully yours in their minds, because you were using it to exploit. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, colonists everywhere, like, it's, they're like children. Okay. Um, okay. In terms of what did Castro want and was any of it implemented? Did everything go smoothly after the revolution? Absolutely not. He went to the United States, reached out to them. Hey, let's have a nice relationship. United States had a hard pass. All right. Anybody that was working with the Batista regime, you're either getting killed or you got to go. Not cool. I don't know. I mean, the, the, not, the killed is not cool. I don't know about the kicking people out. What do you think about the kicking people out? I, I mean, it's better than just mass executions, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, regardless... Those are problems. Things are not necessarily going super smoothly, but smoothly enough to where Castro is able to consolidate power under his cult of personality. And I must stress, this is also another not cool thing he did. Because he is the most iconic of the revolutionary leaders, especially with Echeverria dead a few years earlier, yeah, I mean, people gravitate towards him. And if you're not willing to kind of like begin to side with his growing and developing, because it's not fully developed at this point, political ideology, even if you helped with the revolution, you might be considered an enemy and you will eventually be persecuted. So this is one of the other problematic nature. Mm -hmm. And again, this isn't unique to the Cuban revolution. It happens after every revolution, especially when when multiple political ideologies all kind of coalesce around this similar goal. It's great for the revolution to succeed. Your goal is accomplished. But then afterwards, the aftermath is always messy. Yeah. If many groups are willing to put aside their differences for one specific goal, once that goal is achieved, very often then those other differences begin to manifest themselves. And there is after revolution, basically. So in addition to persecuting some of his former allies, like I said, William Morgan is a, is a, is a, is a, a good example. He ends up dead. He ends up, you know, murdered. Um, like, like in, in addition to that, there are some things that happen that at least follow, I suppose, the goals that he had set out all the way back when he was that idealistic, like idealistic young lawyer. Like I, there are some of those that also take place. He sought equality uh, for all black Cubans and women. The, there were immediately reforms put in place under his tutelage. He's not the dictator yet, but under his early tutelage to uh, to gain social equality for uh, blacks and, and women. And that's important because that's like a super cultural problem in Cuba and it had mm-hmm. been. Those of you that know the encomienda system or can remember some of our earlier episodes where we've talked about the encomienda system know that it was both like ideal and material socialized into like there was a racial hierarchy in all Latin American countries and at the very bottom of that hierarchy were either indigenous peoples or black peoples or former slaves and that had been like socialized just as long in Latin America as it, as it had been in the United States or other places so that was that was very difficult for him to overcome and then of course that 
super cliche colonial machismo that had been brought over by the Spanish and the Portuguese conquistadors. That had been very ingrained. In fact, I would argue it's still very ingrained to this day, but Castro decided to try and take that on. Other things that he was super passionate about, um, in fact, his history uh, will absolve me speech contains a lot of talking about this actually in the buildup. But education, he thought the way to achieve eventual material equity, especially in a socialist leaning system, was to make sure everyone had the same access to and quality education. Education was a big passion of his, and he would argue that it's how he developed the way he did. That he went from this rebellious kid in Catholic school and baseball player to like this really well-rounded individual, at least in terms of academics. I mean, when you, I mean, if you guys click on the, uh, the history will absolve me speech, he's going through like history and philosophy, like just rattling it off in front of a court. Like I use super smart dude. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, education was one of his most, um, important things that he thought, uh, that he could achieve. He also wanted, um, again, healthcare, which we'll talk about in a second to this day. And we'll get into this in the, in the more of the aftermath. Cuba's healthcare system is one of the most renowned in the world. Like, uh, and in fact, Cuban medical, uh, inter internationalism is like world famous everywhere, mm -hmm. except of course the United States, cause we can't say anything nice about Cuba, but yes, mm -hmm. it is world renowned. Uh, Ebola outbreak in West Africa, United States sends troops, Cuba sends doctors. See a difference. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's important. Okay. He wanted better sanitation. He wanted housing guarantees for all. He wanted to end all homelessness in Cuba. Um, and of course, he wanted liberalization of exports, which is obvious. Like you cannot have an independent country when you're only growing one crop, you'll still be dependent. So again, he was pretty smart there. And Che on the Cuban economy goes through how they tried to diversify that in great depth and great detail and where they actually went wrong in some cases. The Cuban economy did suffer. They didn't do this perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, but yeah, the fact that they were able to reflect on where they screwed up was actually quite, quite awesome of Che, because very rarely do we see that among revolutionary leaders. But anyway, um, land redistribution. This obviously ruffled feathers of people in, of course, eventually Miami, because it's their land that's being redistributed. But they got it all through, like, very unsavory, what we would argue, um, very unethical ways themselves. So, like, too bad. Um, anyway. 75% of all land in Cuba at the end of the revolution was owned by foreigners, and obviously he saw that as unacceptable and flipped it. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress this enough. Like, 75%, to just try to give you like a, like the, the data of how corrupt Cuba had become and what he was trying to accomplish, like 75%, that's so much. Um, anyway... Needless to say, for these things to work, at least in practice, you have to lean socialist. Like those are, like when you take out political ideology and you're like equality for minorities and women, um, equal access to healthcare, quality education for all Cubans, housing guarantees, better sanitation. Everyone's like, oh, I like all these things. But the minute you say, well, one path to achieving those was, in this case, socialism, people will be in a like freak. Right? Mm -hmm. They freak out. But that's all what right. he decided he would do. Okay. In terms of differences of revolutionary discourse, this is important. It's not all like rainbows and unicorns, and I think we've done a pretty good job of trying to be a little bit balanced about Castro here. There are some, to talk more a little bit about the oppression that took place as it became a little bit more codified, he creates, and under the under the leadership of, of, of some of his uh, closest allies within the newly forming government, something called the CDRs. They are the Committees for the Defense of the Revolution. Um, and they begin to orient their, I mean, 
Basically, they're forcefully implementing Castro's ideals. Some of them are nice ideals that we talked about, like education and healthcare. Some of them are not nice ideals, like heavy persecution of anybody um, uh, from the LGBTQ plus community. Like he really had a problem there. And that was something that he spent a lot of time doing is persecuting uh, those groups of people. Um, again, for an example, uh, Morgan, uh, the American Morgan was shot for plotting against socialism um, just a month before the Bay of Pigs invasion. It didn't help that he was also quite um, paranoid all the time. Like that probably also didn't help in his direction of these CDRs, these committees for the defense of the revolution. But it happened. Um, the rationalization was like a, an explosion on the La Cubre, the boat, which is super famous. That's what why he uh, was able to frame basically Morgan for plotting against socialism. Um, anyway, did he have a right to be paranoid? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I guess he did. I, I mean, he, there were countless assassination attempts on Fidel Castro uh, by international, international actors, most notably, of course, the United States. In fact, there's even a joke. You can go to the CIA website now where they're almost, I don't want to say they're joking about it, but it's almost like acknowledged, like... Dude, we had this weird, like, obsession. It was. It was an obsession. It's literally called the Castro Obsession by the CIA. In fact, that's the... Go to their website, type in Castro Obsession, CIA. They have their own critique of themselves with their obsession with trying to kill this mm -hmm. one Latin American dictator. There's also kind of like the comic film or the, the tongue-in-cheek film called 638 Ways to Kill Castro. I do not know if there were actually 638 specific assassination attempts on Castro, but holy crap, they tried everything. They try, I mean, everything to try and kill this guy, mm -hmm. and they never did. They kept failing all over the fail boat. Um, not the grandma. Anyway, um, so yes, maybe his paranoia is somewhat justified because I don't, I'm not, no one's tried to assassinate me 638 times, so I don't know. Um, I mean, you don't know about it. You don't know. Yeah, well, I don't have anyone. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, okay. In terms of nationalization, immediately, in terms of how they would implement um, both the good and bad parts of the revolutionary process, the Ministry for the Recovery of Misappropriated Assets and the Agrarian Reform Law were two of the, if you're looking for primary sources, important pieces of legislation that came out of this period, where basically all bourgeoisie-owned land companies were nationalized. Additionally, all foreign holdings, emphasis on U.S. holdings, totaling over 20 million, were taken by the Cuban government and redistributed to the Cuban people. Uh, this one made some enemies also internally. They seized Catholic church holdings and exiled some of the clergy. Um, why pick on the church? I mean, Catholicism is rich in Latin American heritage. It's, it's, it's always going to be debatable if that's a good, mm -hmm. good target for revolutionaries. But why, why would they do this? I mean, two reasons. A, they hold a lot of property. B, they have a lot of ideological control over the population. Okay. Absolutely. In terms of, um... The gangsters, they were just rounded up and expelled, and they took all of their cash, because obviously they were their gangsters dealing with cash. They took all those all their cash. But yeah, they expelled them. Um, all schooling was reformed. Private education was removed. All education would be public. Um, over time, the MR-267 is actually uh, turns into the People's Socialist Party in 1961, until formally becoming the Communist Party of Cuba in 1965. 
I'm skipping through a whole bunch of important events that kind of motivated this more radical change from MR26 to full-blown socialism to full-blown communism, but those events uh, deserve their own episode. They include, of course, the very famous failed Bay of Pigs invasion by the CIA, and they also are going to uh, include the Cuban Missile Crisis, both of which eventually like just brought the the Cuba closer in alliance to the Soviet Union because it just didn't have a choice. Just above it, it has this wildly uh, violent superpower, and I'm not exaggerating. It is, an it is violent to try and assassinate a leader and try and invade his country. That is violence. This wildly violent superpower that is doing everything in its power to make life on Cuba and Cubans hard. Not just violence, but embargoes, trying to keep goods out of Cuba, goods like food and medicine. Like, you're not hurting Castro, you're hurting Cuban people. Like, but that's what the United States did. That embargo lasted for decades. Mm -hmm. Or those embargoes, there's multiple, but yeah, you get the idea. Anyway, so naturally, like, to offset that, you're going to go to the United States' biggest uh, threat, the Soviet Union, to, to, to get more and more help. Um... Okay, anyway, uh, yeah, the, the Bay of Pigs is a, is a disaster. I guess I'm not even going to go into that. It, it, whatever, it took place in 1961. I want to talk real briefly in these last, like, couple of minutes. Like, how did they do on on some of the things that, that Castro would say? We would say Castro was trying to do to make Cuba better. Um, let's talk real quickly. Education. Um, as of 2015, and my source here is the World Economic Forum, um, Cuba had 100% enrollment in school. I don't... I mean, does the United States even have 100% enrollment in school? I can't imagine. Anyway, they had 100% enrollment in school. 94% of, of, of Cubans uh, make it through grade five, which doesn't sound like that's super high. I know their grades are a little bit more advanced than ours, but yeah, 94. 82% though graduate high school. I think that's higher than the United States. Is mm. I don't know. Maybe you could Google that. But 82% mm. of Cubans end up graduating high school. Um, so... To contrast that, like, before the revolution, like, not even 82% of Cubans were even allowed to attend school or could afford to attend school. So we would argue that that is, that is something that ended up... 85% in the United States. Okay, so uh, it's close. Okay. Cuba um, ends up spending about 13% of its gross domestic product on education. I will repeat that one more time. 13% of anything Cuba produces is directed to educating Cubans, making a more complete Cuban people. You want, you want, you want United States number on that one? United States only spends 5.6%. This data comes to us from the World Bank, which you were thinking if the World Bank was going to side with one or the other in its stats, it would definitely be the U.S., but no, no. Cuba spends much more of its uh, uh, of its funding on education, on its public funding on education. Um, draw your own conclusions. I have a lot of commentary on that as an educator uh, in the United States, but yeah. Okay. Literacy. 99.7% of Cubans are literate. It is tied for fourth best in the world. I don't believe it was even 50% before the revolution. Right. Uh, in case you're wondering, the United States sits at a 86%. Um, this comes to us from a 2015 report by UNESCO. Um, the Cubans rank first uh, in all of Latin America in math and science scores. I'm not a big fan of standardized tests in education. I actually really hate them, but if you like standardized tests, here you go. 
the most advanced Latin American nation in the math and science is, is, is Cuba. Uh, and that comes to us from the World Bank in 2009. Um, all clothes and food are provided for kids in school. So you get your clothing, you get your food, your, 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 all your square meals. All of this is provided for you. So there's no kids like embarrassingly having to go uh, and talk about the free lunch program like we have here in the United States or whatever, mm -hmm. being like ostracized. But yeah, I mean, it's just bad. Like, it's just bad. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Um, in terms of like what happens after high school, there is a 60-40 split because you get to go to higher education also for free. I mean, not free, you pay taxes, but like you're, you get that. 60% of Cubans go to a uh, advanced university after high school, 40% go to a vocational school. Um, and that comes to us from the School Superintendent Association of 2017, an actual, like the United States, like a, an association looked at Cuba, like to study a little bit about like what they were doing there. So it's kind of interesting that they found that. What do you think of that? I mean, that deserves this whole episode. And I, I, I don't want to get too deep into this because we both have strong feelings about the way education mm -hmm. works, especially higher education in the United States. But like, I mean, I think it's a hallmark of, yeah, oh, man, yeah, you're right, it deserves its own episode. There are so many countries in the world where you can go to college for free or for very, very inexpensively compared to the United States, and I think that says a little bit about um, the way that we view individualism, et cetera, and how much we have bought into the capitalist economy. Um, his passion for healthcare. Uh, I struggled with reports here. Uh, the, the, the most recent I have is 2000, unfortunately, from the World Health Organization. And as of 2000, um, uh, Cuba ranked 39th in the world in terms of highest quality healthcare, which is actually pretty impressive when you think about the fact that in 2000, they were still dealing with decades of embargoes from the United States that embargoes include like medicine, mm -hmm. like advanced medicines that we've been working on here, at least, you know, the Pfizer's or whatever I've been working on. They now have access to a lot of that. So it's actually super impressive that this tiny island with its completely like insular healthcare system achieved that amid an embargo. For sure. I will say the United States did top them as of 2000. If Cuba was 39, US was 37, which is actually wildly embarrassing when you consider the amount of money we dump into this wildly ineffective healthcare system, but that also deserves its own video and we will do that later. Life expectancy at the time. Um, oh, excuse me, this one's more recent. And the United Nations has life expectancy in Cuba at 79.6 years. Uh, again, for comparison's sake, the United States is 79.2 years, so uh, pretty similar. We already talked real quickly about Cuban medical internationalism, but it is world famous. Literally every outbreak or pandemic or whatever's going on around the world, you can guarantee, and it is just Castro's been doing this, um, Castro's successor, all, they've been doing this. They, they send doctors everywhere. Like mm -hmm. Cuban medical internationalism is famous everywhere, of course, except the United States. They will send doctors everywhere, um, and their doctors are some of the best in the world. So it is... I mean, right now they're working in Kenya, although that is, Kenyans are starting to have a little bit of a problem with like some of the liberties they're taking. But yes, like, like that's happening. Okay. Um, in terms of equality, um, they have the 25th best, and I don't know how this is all measured. You can look at it, but it's the World Economic Forum that measures this. The 25th best gender gap in the world. In other words, it's like the, the 25th least amount of gap between like the sexes, right? Male and female and what they're able to um, make in the economic world. Um, uh, if you're wondering, the United States is almost twice as bad. It is 49th. So surprise, surprise. 
Um, and this came to us from uh, as uh, studies from 2012. I am actually willing to bet, based on the current regime and a certain movement following that regime, it's only going to be worse in the United States, but that's just me. Um, okay, anyway, 43% of all parliament seats in Cuba are held by women. That is actually among the best in the entire world. Mm -hmm. Just so we're clear. There is no data for me to help measure like how Castro helped fix racism in Cuba. I, I couldn't find anything that would be of any worthy. There was no, using my positivist lens, there was no good measure that I could find there. Um, in terms of income disparity, how socialism um, kind of operated there, it is the uh, it is the t it used to be the tenth best in the world in terms of like socioeconomic stratification. It had the tenth best like least stratification, but changes to the GINI index have yielded no tangible results in like over a decade. So I bet I don't have anything that I would willingly stand on right this second. Um, in terms of economic freedom, however, for those of you that are going to be like all wildly like neoliberal on me right now and probably mad at it and going to write a mad comment um, about the Cuban revolution or you live in Miami. Um, I, to be fair, uh, they rank 177th out of 179 uh, possible countries at the time by the Wall Street Journal in terms of economic freedom. So they are near dead last in economic freedom. But what, what does that mean? I guess you can't, you don't get to choose between 75 different types of a phone. Right. I, I mean, so do what you will with that information. And uh, in terms of GDP per capita, which is a favorite of, of neoliberals everywhere, they love this data. I, I think it's absolutely useless data, but whatever, it is data. They uh, rank 132nd. Uh, that comes to us from the CIA, so uh, they are not an overly productive group of people. And it's per capita is what I'm talking about, not just... Anyway. Um, so, like, some good, some bad, but the Cuban Revolution definitely deserved its own entire episode. Um and you have concluding thoughts? I mean, bring us home on this. Like, what are you, I just spent, I don't even know, a well over an hour talking about the Cuban Revolution from a couple of different standpoints, revolutionary icons, um, its place within like um, American colonialism. Um, we talked about uh, both its good parts of trying to make the world a more equitable place, but still picking on certain people for either their past uh, under the Batista regime or their sexual orientation or like, like, it's gray. There is no black or white with the Cuban Revolution. There's so many. It's gray. What What do you think? I mean, this is just me personally, but like so many revolutions, we, me, you, and I analyze from like the systematic perspective of like breaking it down based on revolutionary theory and history and so forth. For me, the Cuban Revolution is the best story of revolution. Like these 82 people, men and women, on this tiny boat crossing the sea from Mexico to Cuba and literally taking down a U.S.-backed dictator, like just the story of the revolution itself, I think is better than almost any other, which I love. It also lends itself to analysis of these other types of theories, like you said, the cult of personality and military strategy like Fukismo and so on. All of that is there too. And it's not perfect and no revolution is perfect, but it's a really, really good example of many of those things. And... It's also a good example of all of these things on a global scale. Like there are so many international forces at play here right. that it's really, really crucial. It's also one of the ones that is against a U.S. held territory like at the time, which is very, very important. 
Yeah. So again, we will have at least two sub episodes that are attached to this mm-hmm. one on Fokismo and protracted warfare and chase chase theories there and guerrilla warfare and one just going over Castro's like amazing speech history will absolve me. Those are definitely two. There might be some two interconnected ones later on down the line uh, uh, regarding the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis as well, because like, we know Americans get all hot and bothered over both of those. But they're also the, the fact that they always get hot and bothered mean there's already really good content on them. So I don't know that we can bring anything new to the mm-hmm. table there, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but that's it. Cuban Revolution, not black, not white, but gray. Um, and yet still one of the most um, enigmatic events of the 20th century, inspiring. And here's the part that we didn't really dig into, and I'm, I'm trying to end the episode anyway, but it must be stressed. If you want to know about its global impact, there's a there's an article we assigned by Eric Selbin um, called, what, Conjugating the Cuban Revolution, mm-hmm. where he talks, and he we're really respects Selbin, where he talks about, like, the, the revolution and the iconography isn't just about like what happened on the ground. What happened on the ground when you actually look at it isn't super unique in revolutionary processes. It's the idea, and Nick even touched on this, this idea of this tiny little island, not just overthrowing the yoke of a brutal dictator, but like the imperialism of the United States, which of which very few countries can say they did successfully. Cuba, Iran, and maybe North Korea, although again, we've said on this podcast, we are not fans of what North what's going on in North Korea, but regardless, like... There's very few countries, and so Cuba became a global icon where mm. other countries around Vietnam, you know, look to Cuba for inspiration. Like, so, yeah. Anyway. And, like, Che himself, we didn't talk about this, but he leaves eventually Cuba yeah. and goes on to lead revolutions in other places, which ends up with him getting murdered by the CIA. Yeah, he goes to the Congo. He does fail in the Congo. And uh, if you, if you, for those of you that are just looking for reasons to dislike Che, I always feel like I do have to mention this. Um, one of the reasons he feels like he fa- failed in the Congo was a little bit of uh, uh, of racism. He he blamed the fact that he did not think that the Congolese, based on their race, were able to keep up with what he was trying to accomplish or whatever. So that if you if you're looking for one more stain on on Chase, which we, we like the dude, but like you have to talk about everything, right? Good and bad and ugly. Anyway, so there's that, and then Che ends up in Bolivia, um, thinking that would be the gateway to Argentina, uh, his home, to also have a revolution there, but it is in Bolivia that he is hunted down um, by the CIA. They then give him intel to Bolivian police forces, and the Bolivian police forces murder him. There's no trial. There's no nothing. He is just murdered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Find us online, revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you like what we do, uh, leave a comment. If you're listening to this on your podcasting app, leave us a rating and a comment. Um, like the video, subscribe. And uh, if you really, really love what we're doing, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.